Welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Session 6, Recovering the Felt Presence of God. So welcome to session six, um, continuing on our summer breakout sessions tonight. Last week we talked about repentance and faith, and you remember that I laid out for you basically two levels of sin. Um, The first level of sin was understanding sin as breaking God's commandments. So we looked at Genesis 3 and the fall, and we saw that Um, Eve, in that situation, did exactly the one thing that God had told her not to do, which was to eat the tree from the garden. So we can think of sin uh, sin in one sense as as breaking the rules, doing, going against what God commands us to. But do you remember there was a deeper and more fundamental aspect to sin that kind of came underneath of that? Do you remember what that was? We could call it the sin beneath the sin. Trusting God. So not trusting God. Yep. Anybody else care to add to that? And what did I say that not trusting God was like? What, what, is, what is it essentially? When we're not trusting God, what are we doing? Relying on ourselves or relying on other, other things, which functionally become like our God. So we reflected a little bit on the teaching of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said that the Ten Commandments are all really just commentary or explanation of the first commandment, which is, thou shalt have no other gods besides me. So stealing, murdering, committing adultery, um, coveting, are really all fundamentally a matter of not trusting God, not looking to God for our lives, not looking to God for our value, our ultimate value, our significance. And instead, um, we very easily look to other things in order to try to fill that void or the, or the gap that we feel in our lives. So we explain repentance then in terms of those two senses of sin, because repentance is a turn of direction, it's turning away from sin. So you could think of repentance on the one hand as sort of not doing bad things or not breaking God's commands, but I think a more helpful way to think about what sin is, is sin is not placing your identity in, 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 in things other than God. And so turning repentance or faith is about, um, is about giving up those things, whether it's career, whether it's money and security, whether it's pleasure, and rather grabbing a hold of God, grabbing a hold of the blessings and the life that come only through him and through the gospel. We talked a little bit, um, too, in past sessions about the way that the cross sometimes does not become larger in our experience and how oftentimes, even, even as followers of Jesus, we're not growing in our appreciation, our love for what God has done for us. And so one of the ways that that happens is through minimizing sinfulness. Um, We tend to downplay our sin. We don't want to go there. We don't want to admit how sinful we are. And so instead we, we pretend that we're much more righteous than we are and we look for righteousness in other things, whether it's how you dress or where you're from or your ethnicity. Um, I wanted to sort of take a very practical turn today and say that um, there's another way or another reason that oftentimes we get stunted um, in our growth as 
disciples of Jesus. And it's a little bit different from this idea of minimizing sinfulness. Um, on the one hand, true growth in Christ and true growth in discipleship is a matter of repentance and faith. You're not going to grow in your, in your walk with the Lord unless you're continually in a cycle of repentance and faith. But sometimes, all the good news in the world about what God has done for us in Christ doesn't really move us. And it doesn't affect us. We don't feel it. We don't experience it in our day-to-day lives. And so I want to explore sort of what's going on behind that situation. And I want to just say at the, at the front end that if you are a person who has very clear experiences of God and you see God moving in your life and you have no idea what I'm talking about tonight, then I'm, I apologize in advance. This, this talk is more for, for people, it's more targeted and geared towards people who perhaps have been um, disciples for a while, but feel like there's something lacking in terms of their day-to-day experience with God. Because this is something that I, that I went through for a long time. I used to be one of those people that when I would go to a worship service and I would see, you know, there's always those classic people at the front who are really, really into the worship. And they're just like, you know, they have their hands up in the air and they're like really rocking out. And it seems like something really incredible is happening in their lives as they're worshiping. I always used to be the person in the back that would kind of wonder, what is it that those front row people have that I don't have? Because <laughs> I never understood what it was exactly that they were experiencing and why in the world do they have their hands raised up in the air and why in the world do they seem to be enjoying worship so much? So that used to, that used to be me. Um, the problem I think that a lot of us, some of you might face, is a, a mind-heart connection problem. In other words, perhaps you've grown up with the gospel, you've heard in church, in small group, that God loves you, you've heard that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you've heard that through the gospel you are um, fully accepted and loved by God, unconditionally loved, but it doesn't, it's not connecting. It doesn't, it doesn't move you. It doesn't affect you. This is a huge problem. And let me sit, let me try to demonstrate why. Imagine this is sort of a a guy I know. Um, Jason is stuck. All right. He graduated from college a little bit late um, because of some issues that he had in college. Um, after he graduated from college, he was kind of behind, behind the ball a little bit. A lot of his friends were, were already well advanced in their careers. He's working a job that he doesn't really like. He's not making as much money as he had hoped he would be making. He sees his friends doing very successfully. They seem to be well on their way in their careers. They're making a lot more money than he is. So he's concerned about his future. He's concerned about his, his uh, security. He feels like the only way that he can really get himself to the place where he wants to be in his life would be to go to grad school. But he's not really passionate about anything. He's not really quite sure um, what he wants to do. And he, he didn't score that great on his grad school, you know, the GMAT or whatever, the GRE. So, so he's kind of stuck. And he wants to advance himself, but he feels very discontent. He's beginning to, to doubt himself. He's feeling insecure because his friends are are doing a lot better than, than he is. He feels like he's behind because he's a little bit older. It's a very, I've changed the details a little bit, but this, I hear this type of thing all the time. This person, let's say Jason, what is the gospel for Jason? What does sonship mean 
for Jason. Yes, Diedrich. Can you, can you elaborate on that? So the gospel for Jason could be purpose. Okay. Yeah, Ken. Can you, what kind of comfort? So you said if he if he's if he's in a situation of discomfort he can fall back on knowing God loves him God cares for him he's, he's going to be okay yeah exactly right the gospel for Jason you guys are you guys are right another way you could say it is that in his insecurity and in his doubt the gospel is that God loves him God accepts him even though he may not be as doing as well as everybody else. The gospel is that Jason's value as a person does not come from his career, but rather his value comes because God has said, Jason, you're my son, I love you, I accept you just the way you are, and I have a plan for your life. Now, that's all good news, but here's Jason's problem. Jason knows that up here, and he knows that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross Jason knows God loves him. Jason knows he's accepted. But the problem is he doesn't really feel it. He doesn't really experience it. And so for Jason, the problem is he knows that, yeah, I shouldn't worry about my future. Yeah, I shouldn't doubt myself. Yeah, I know God loves me. But his feelings of insecurity, his feelings of doubt are very strong, whereas his feelings of, and his experience of God is very weak and is very superficial And so he doesn't have a firm enough grasp of the gospel in his heart in order to be able to overcome his current situation. So he continues to wallow in a sense of insecurity, a sense of self-pity, rather than taking the comfort and the knowledge of God's love and acceptance for him and being a conqueror and getting through his difficult situation. And that is the problem that a lot of us face, that, that when the rubber hits the road and we have situations in our life where we are facing adversity, facing insecurity, facing self-doubt, and perhaps there's a person that we need to forgive, perhaps there's a difficult situation, uh, we have the head knowledge of the gospel, but it is not impacting us. We're not feeling it. And so it becomes very hard to overcome and to, to embrace your, your sonship or your daughtership, your, your, your child of Godship, whatever you want to call it. It becomes very hard to um, embrace that and to live it and to overcome. How many of you have ever read the Bible and then wondered, why is it that I read the Bible and it seems like God does these amazing miracles, and yet it seems like I can barely see God doing anything of that magnitude in my own life. You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about that. How many of you can relate to feeling like, wow, when I read the Bible, it seems like people hear from God so clearly, like God's just speaking to people left and right, and they get these very clear words from God, and yet you strive and strive, and you feel like you can barely sort of make out what God is saying to you or what is happening in your own life. How many of you have ever felt like you've been a Christian for a while and it just seems like there should be more to it than what you've tasted and what you've experienced? So the question is, why is this? Why is it so hard to see? Why is it that we know God loves us, but we don't often feel God's love? We know God's everywhere, but we don't necessarily sense and 
experience his presence in a practical, real, tangible way in our lives. That's what I'm talking about today, okay? There's a great song, I'm sure, a super famous song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, which um, really captures, I think, the desire that a lot of us have. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory, pour out your power and love while we sing holy, holy, holy. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. So that, that song, I think, really captures what a lot of us experience, wanting to see God, wanting to hear Him, wanting to experience Him. And the Bible has, talks about having spiritual eyes, what you could call the eyes of the heart. And the eyes of the heart, like your eyes, are what perceive things, whereas our eyes perceive what is sort of natural and real in the material world. The eyes, we need eyes of our heart to be able to perceive things of a spiritual nature. And this is exactly, I think, the source of the problem when it comes to experience and when it comes to tangibly knowing and feeling God, is that the eyes of our heart are actually clouded over. And the culture that we live in, the environment that we live in, functions very much like a curtain that, or blinds that block the eyes of our heart from seeing and perceiving God in our everyday experience. Um, Richard Rollheiser has written about, he's written a book called um, the, Sh- the Shattered Lantern, I believe it's called. Um, and he talks a lot about how the felt experience of God is practically non-existent even among religious people and Christians. Uh, he's a Catholic priest. We live in an age of unbelief. What sets us apart from past generations is that today this is as true within religious circles as outside of them. We feel the effect, uh, effects of religious activity of the past, but our own consciousness borders on agnosticism. Um, agnosticism is, is the philosophy that, that God might be real, he might exist, but we can't know about it. We can't experience it or, or know for certain. So basically, God might exist, he might not exist, it doesn't matter because he's beyond knowing. That's what agnosticism is. He says that in our own consciousness, many of us are functionally, you know, in name we're, we're believers, in, func- in function, in practice, we're agnostics. Rarely is there a vital sense of God within the bread and butter of life, he says. We still have some experience of God, though rarely is it a vital one in which we actually drink firsthand from living waters. Insofar as God does enter our everyday experience, we most often, or most often he is not experienced as a living person to whom we actually talk from whom we seek ultimate consolation and comfort, and to whom we relate person to person, friend to friend, lover to lover, child to parent. And he's quick to point out that it's not that God's not here anymore. right? The reason for this functional agnosticism, this, the reason for us not experiencing God, feeling God's presence, feeling his love is not because he doesn't love us and it's not because he's not here. God is here. But the reason is because we are not perceiving it. And so what he would say is that there's actually a crisis of... um, There's a crisis of 
contemplation. Our spiritual eye has become weak. We don't use it. Um, in a way, the, the spiritual eye or the eye of the heart is like a muscle. And in the same way that if you don't use the muscle, it atrophies, it becomes harder and harder to use it. So because we're not using the eyes of our heart, we're not using the spiritual eye, it becomes weakened. And for a variety of reasons, which I'm going to explain in a minute, our ability to perceive God and sense God in the day-to-day, in real-life experience, fades and disappears until we are asking ourselves, does God even exist? Um, here are some of the reasons. And I'm, I'm sort of simplifying some of what he says and reflecting on some other, other uh, commentary that people have made in our culture, but a lot of this is from, from Rollheiser. He says that we've lost the ability to be silent. We're dead terrified of silence. We try to fill the silence however we can. Listen to the radio, listen to Pandora, listen to Spotify. Um, You get in the elevator, people can't handle being quiet for the five seconds it takes to get to the sixth floor immediately. We're on our phones, right? We're on the subway. We're always doing stuff, always listening to music, entertaining ourselves. We are terrified of silence. He comments that we're restless beyond measure, we can't handle staying still. We always need to be doing things, especially in New York. We're a production-oriented culture. Your value is totally ref- you know, based on what you're able to produce. We feel bad when we are not producing. We always want to be working, always want to be productive, always want to be producing because we know that we'll never get anywhere unless we go, go, go because we're in such a competitive environment where we're always being compared with others. We have lost the ability to be astonished. We're not impressed by anything. Anything that we can possibly imagine, we can look it up on YouTube in five seconds, and you know, there's basically nothing that you can imagine that hasn't been shown on TV or in the movies. Um, you see the most insane things happening on the, sh- on the streets and in the subways, and you walk right by. Um, we're New Yorkers. We're just not impressed with anybody. We're not impressed with anything. But we've lost our ability, which which the ancients had, is the ability to be astonished, to notice things that were spectacular. Um, We always want to be entertained. There's a great book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He talks about how we live in a culture of entertainment where we really have lost our, uh, and to a large extent, have lost our ability to be able to process lots of information. And we need need things in sort of bite-sized chunks um, even the news really is not news per se. It's more just entertainment. And where our attention span is so quick that on TV and movies, we are constantly being shown images to keep our attention. And as time goes by, the length of images that were shown becomes smaller and smaller. We're constantly having to be fed images. Um, the average American watches, guess how many hours of TV per day? Seven. No, not, not seven, five. Five. But consider, too, that young people don't just watch TV, right? They're on their phones or the iPad and watching TV at the same time. So we're feeding ourselves a steady stream of media almost constantly. We're afraid of silence. On top of that, the city itself is not conducive to contemplation. The city is loud. It's very hard to get privacy in the city. It's hard to find a place to be alone. Um, We are a self-obsessed culture. Um, especially yuppies and people that are upwardly mobile, constantly trying to improve ourselves. We're focused on our lives, focused on our success, focused on um, achievement, success, career, 
it's all about self-improvement in our culture, and our self-focus makes us very unaware of what's happening around us, very aware of other people even. We're busy all the time. I mean, I'm not, hopefully I'm not really saying anything that, that's new. Um, we have an inability to face uncomfortable situations, and we have a million ways that we turn to things in order to basically uh, fill the void. We turn to things to self-medicate. Right, so maybe it's binging on on Netflix videos, maybe it's smoking, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's food, maybe it's shopping, um, maybe it's surfing the internet, maybe it's being on Facebook for hours and hours and hours. Um, we escape however we however possible, and so the net result of this is that our spiritual eyes have become weak; they become blind. We're really not paying attention to God. And our ability to hear God, perceive God, see God um, is like an atrophying muscle. And the problem in all of this is that God makes himself available to us and reveals himself where? Let's look at 1 Kings a minute. Um, This is Elijah's interaction with God from 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, at this point in time, Elijah is very, very upset with God. He's just had a harrowing experience, and so he's very angry. He goes out into the wilderness. He just wants to be by himself. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God reveals himself not in the wind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but he reveals himself in the gentle whisper. This is not at all different from what we get from Jesus. Um, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, has a very interesting phrase that he uses repeatedly when he talks about connecting with God and receiving blessing from God. Um, So Matthew chapter 6, 3 and 4, he's talking about almsgiving. He says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy, verses 16 through 18, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Sorry, I got Uh, They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What does it mean 
to seek God in secret or in the secret. So your so your most barest, your most rawest self. When you're alone. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there certainly seems to be the the theme in here is like, you know, you could be doing all these things sort of out and about, or you could be seeking God in that place where it's just you and Him. So when was the last time you sought God in the secret place? Or maybe, where is your secret place? Where is the place where it's just you and God, person to person, face to face? And how can we expect to hear from God or to see God unless we create time, unless we create space, not just physical, but emotional, psychological, in order to be able to meet him there. So how do we do that? How do we create that space? How do we meet with God in the secret? And that is um, the answer to that question, according to church tradition and according to the Bible, is the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines have traditionally been the way that Followers of Jesus create space for God in their lives. Prayer, Bible reading, silence, Sabbath, meditation, and service, these are probably the most common ones. Um, I hope to elaborate a little bit more on some of them in the future. We're not going to have time to talk about all of them tonight. I'm going to talk primarily about prayer. Um, But the disciplines in general are a way of connecting what's up here to to what's in here, from what's in your mind, what you know knowledge-wise, and having it be be real. That spiritual disciplines are not a way that we earn God's favor. They're not a way that we can save ourselves. Not at all. We believe and we teach we're saved by grace. It's only through faith that a person can receive salvation from Christ. However... It's one thing to, under, to know that grace. Um, the spiritual disciplines are a way, I guess you could say, of grasping a better hold of what that grace is all about. A way of opening yourself up to realizing the fullness of grace, the, the distance of grace. Um, Richard Foster has a great book called Celebration of Discipline. And if you want to learn more about the disciplines, all of them, I would highly recommend reading um, the book. But this is what he says. He says, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. So, The Holy Spirit, of course, is the one who creates in us a sense of grace, a sense of God's love, and a sense of God's Holy Spirit. The spiritual disciplines are a way of opening ourselves up to receiving the Spirit um, and experiencing the Spirit on a deeper level. In the same way that we can do things to sort of block ourselves from experiencing the Spirit by holding on to anger or by being so distracted all the time, it's through the spiritual disciplines that we can open ourselves up to experiencing more of what God has to offer. So I want to talk about prayer today. And um, cut me off at around 8 o'clock, all right? I want to try to wrap up by, by 8 because we have other things to do tonight. 
Um, but I want to talk about prayer. And here's the thing. So we all know, of course, that prayer is important. We need to pray. Disciples need to pray. Um, but when a person is not experiencing God or hearing from God, prayer is like the last thing you feel like doing, right? Um, because if God already feels distant, and if God's love already seems somewhat abstract, and you don't feel like you're hearing from God, then prayer feels like a total, total waste of time. And so in a lot of ways, we've got we to gotta get over that hump. It's like, imagine that a, a person is nauseous, and they're really, they have no appetite. They don't want to eat anything because they're not feeling very well. And so the doctor get, offers them a pill and says, if you eat this pill, then you will get, you'll get over your nausea and you'll be able to eat, and then you'll feel better. But the person says, well, I am nauseous, and I, I don't have any appetite, and I don't feel like eating anything, so I don't want to eat the pill. Um, you see that there's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a quandary there, right? Because the one thing that the, that the patient doesn't feel like doing is the only thing that will help them to feel better. And in a lot of ways, prayer, prayer is like that. So it might be that prayer is something that you're not feeling it. You, you don't, it seems like a waste of time. It seems like you're just making yourself do it. It's a hard pill to swallow. And yet, it is through prayer that the problem will be fixed. You see what I'm saying? And so it is, it, it, it is something, that, basically you can't make the excuse that it's not going to work because it's, it's the, in fact it's the only thing and it's probably the most, one of the most important things that we can do to give ourselves and to receive more of the presence of God. There is nothing, there is nothing more important than prayer if you want to really, really understand the heart of God and connect with God on any sort of a regular basis. Um, in the Bible, we see that, that prayer, of course, is assumed. Um, one of the Ten Commandments, well, I'm sorry, none of the Ten Commandments say you should pray. I think if the Ten Commandments had been written now, it probably one of, them, one of them would have been, you should pray. The reason the Ten Commandments don't have any mention of prayer, and the, ne- the reason Jesus never said you should pray, were why? Does anybody know? Because it was assumed that people were praying. Um, cultures around the world, religions around the world, prayed. The average Jew in the first century prayed, you know, about two to three hours a day. And this is not even like this is not even like good religious people. This is average people. Prayer was built into the culture. There were regular set times of prayer. Um, so Jesus never said you should pray. He always used the expression when you pray. He was assuming that his followers would be praying because prayer was always normal. So obviously in our culture, it's something that's very, very different. Um, and throughout the scripture, we're encouraged in different ways to, to pray continually. Um, Ephesians 6.18, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It's always, all the time, all occasions. Acts 2, verse 42, we see the apostles. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 16.17, it says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Um, interestingly, in the Gospels, we also see the example of Jesus himself. And I've always been um, somewhat fascinated by this, because if Jesus is the Son of God, you would think that prayer would not really be that necessary for him, because it would almost be like he was talking to himself. And yet, 
In the Gospels, we read that Jesus himself set aside time to pray. Very early in the morning, while it was still, this is Mark chapter 1, 35 through 37. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. So you got to remember, Jesus in his ministry was vastly popular. And there were sick people everywhere. They needed his attention. They needed to hear his teaching. So Jesus has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Everybody's coming to him because they need him so desperately. And what is he doing? In the early morning, he's leaving all his responsibilities behind. And he's going and spending one-on-one time with his Heavenly Father praying. And we see that throughout Jesus' life at key moments where he has to do something really big or important, he goes and he prays in order to prepare himself. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus, before he calls the 12 disciples, spends the entire night in prayer. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So we see even Jesus nurturing his relationship with his Heavenly Father through prayer, getting away from the demands of life to spend time in prayer, seeking God in prayer, in the hardest moment of his life, which perhaps was the night before um, he was crucified, he knew everything that was going to happen. And what is Jesus doing? And what is he asking his disciples to do? Pray. The Garden of Gethsemane, he goes up on the, on the mountaintop to pray. So even Jesus um, demonstrates for us of the importance of a life of prayer. Even Jesus finds wisdom, finds connection with God, finds power and finds strength in prayer. Jesus, when he's baptized and the heavens open up and the dove descends on him from heaven, um, it happened while he was praying. It was during Jesus' prayer, during his baptism, that he received the Holy Spirit and God says, this is my son. happens while he's praying. So what happens in prayer? Prayer, I I guess the, the, the simplest definition of prayer is prayer is simply talking with God. And the importance of prayer, the importance of talking with God is as important as it is in any other relationship that we would care to cultivate or develop. Um, My wife might love me and I might love her, but unless we spend, everybody looks over you, Chris, unless we spend intentional time with each other, unless we talk, our experience of each other diminishes our um, not our love necessarily, but our experience of that love diminishes. You can't get to know someone without talking to them, without spending quality time with them. And the same is true in our relationship with God. It takes time to talk with God. Um, prayer is not fundamentally or most importantly about getting things from God. Actually, that's... Um, is not a bad reason to, to pray, is to get things from God. God welcomes it. Jesus welcomes it. He says, if you need something, pray and ask. But getting things from God is not the most important part of what prayer is about. Prayer is about communing. It's about connecting. Um, through prayer, we don't change God, but through prayer, we change. And our experience of God changes. And our intimacy with God changes. Um, through prayer, we learn unexpected things about God. I, I, I've had been in times of prayer where I've sort of perceived or sensed that God was doing things, and it surprised me, gave me a new sense of who God is. God apparently has a sense of humor. I don't know if you knew this. Um, 
Richard Foster writes, Did I put this up? To pray is to change. All who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. For those explorers in the frontiers of faith, prayer was no little habit tacked on to the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was the most serious work of their most productive years. Prayer. Nothing draws us closer to the heart of God. Through prayer, we're able to lay our needs before God. Through prayer, we're able to gain wisdom and counsel from God. Through prayer, we're able to gain a sense of comfort in difficult times. Through prayer, we experience the Holy Spirit and experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. We get boldness through prayer. Um, Through prayer, we receive power to face difficult circumstances and to overcome challenges in our life. Through prayer, God works miracles and changes situations. Through prayer, God brings healing into people's lives. Through prayer, we learn more about the extent of God's love. Through prayer, people can be healed. And it is through prayer that God brings his kingdom to fruition in this world, which is why in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray for the coming of his kingdom. Um, As I mentioned to you earlier, I, I was one of those people sitting in the back, looking at the people in the front, having no idea what was going on. As I've shared with you already, Um, there was definitely something lacking in my life for a long time. And when I went in that interview and the folks in the committee told me that they didn't... You remember the story, right? They told me they weren't sure that I was cut out for it. Um, There was something missing. And I'm quite confident that a big part of that, what was missing, was that sort of real experience and understanding of God. I had the head knowledge, I had the theology, but I did not have an active prayer life and I didn't really have a real sense of God's presence or his love. And over the years, praying more was through prayer that a lot of that, praise God, has become a lot more real for me. And I hope that through prayer that it can become a lot more real for you as well if it's not already. We're disciples of Jesus, and that means we take his lead. It means we imitate him. And Jesus prayed, and he taught us. He invites us also as disciples to enter into the contemplative, to spend time in prayer, to learn to know who God is through prayer, through connecting with him. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll take a break. We'll go into our small groups for some discussion and some prayer. And then um, we're going to close with a prayer exercise, actually, at around quarter till. So... Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray for a greater desire to pray. Um, We pray that you would excite us with what is available through prayer and that you would draw us to yourself, help us to realize more and more um, just the bounty, the, the riches that you offer us that are accessible through faith and through the prayer of faith. Lord, may we be a community that loves to pray, a community that is committed to prayer. May we pray like you did. May we know you. May we imitate Jesus the way that you yourself took time to pray and to be with your Heavenly Father and to know him. And may we turn away from thinking of prayer as just something that we do in order to get things, but may we embrace prayer as a way of connecting more with what with the good stuff that we know that you have given us through Christ, that we may embrace your love, embrace our sonship, 
and embrace the promises which are ours through Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygraceny.com for more information.